Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 4 this morning. The title of our sermon is Before the World Began. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are chosen, covenant, and holy. Now, if I were to take a poll and ask everyone what they think about decrees, my guess is that most of us would have a rather negative view about decrees. After all, we are Americans, and the idea of a decree being handed down that I am required to follow lest I bear terrible consequences just grates against my liberty-loving sensibilities in ways very different from anything else. Decrees, as you likely know, are laws. They're handed down by those in authority. And specifically, a rule by decree is a style of governance that allows for the unchallenged creation of laws by a single person or a small group of people. These are generally used in dictatorships or or absolute monarchs. They've been very popular throughout history in various nations. There are, of course, some very troubling examples of decrees. The Reichstag Fire Decree, that was handed down in Germany in 1933 when President Paul von Hindenburg was convinced by Adolf Hitler to issue a decree suspending the civil rights of all of the people indefinitely. And as a result, Nazi authorities were able to suppress or imprison their opposition for any reason they saw fit, and eventually that turned into the Third Reich and all that it is sadly known for today. That's how we think of decrees most of the time. Now, if there's anything good to be said about decrees, it's that they're efficient because they don't have to be debated and agreed upon and voted on or anything like that. Perhaps if the power of decree was in the hands of a benevolent dictator who truly did what was in the best interest of the people, that might be a satisfactory thing. However, we understand as Christian the hearts of men. But oftentimes we think of the ways we understand decrees and all of the negativity that we tie to them and we carry that into our understanding of the decrees of God. What about the decrees of God? What do we think about those? And hopefully all of us understand that God is sovereign and so we reason, of course, that God rules by absolute decree. A sovereign God rules by decree. He rules over all of the universe because he is the creator of all of the universe. So quite simply stated, when God issues a decree over the universe, it is according to his counsel, it is according to his eternal plan, and it will come to pass. However, unlike the decrees of earthly dictators and rogue governments, God's decrees are good and right and are for the benefit of God's people and God's glory. The Bible is filled with examples of the decrees of God. However, one particular aspect of God's decree involving the salvation of mankind has not gone without much debate among Christians throughout the history of the church. If you're keyed into the debate, I've very clearly identified my bias right off the bat by calling man's salvation a decree from God. But sometimes what happens 
is that we get to, to something that might be difficult to understand or it might be difficult to accept as being true because we either don't like it or it doesn't align with what we've presupposed. So sometimes we're willing to just set it aside and not deal with it. And when it comes to the doctrine of election, and in the weeks ahead we'll talk about predestination, many have determined that the right position to take is no position at all. And so it's determined that it's a mystery and we ought to simply give up on the discussion. Others become so zealous for their position that they are willing to demonize and belittle those who disagree with them, even to the point of questioning whether or not someone who doesn't agree with them on this issue could even be a Christian at all. Now my hope this morning and in the weeks ahead as we look at the doctrines of eternal election and predestination is that we can do a few things. First, we as a church believe that the Bible gives enough evidence with regard to the decree of God concerning election that we need not set it aside and file it under the mystery of God. However, I also pray that God will simply keep us faithful to the text as we walk through Ephesians 1 and that I might give a positive theological position for the doctrine of divine election as we move along. Our focus will not be polemic in nature. I have no intention of refuting the claims of those I disagree with. I have every intention of hopefully giving us a clear view of what the Bible teaches positively. And I want to state up front, unequivocally, while I may have very strong disagreements with others on the issue, I still count many of them my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, I wish for and I hope we can find agreement on the issue at some point, but even if we do not, it's important that we remember our salvation is based upon the free grace of God by faith alone And we agree on that with other Christians, even though on this doctrine they may disagree. But it's here in the Bible, these words exist, we have to understand what they mean, and now they are used as the text lays them out very specifically, and so we want to see what the Apostle Paul teaches us regarding the doctrine of divine election. So with that, we look in our Bibles in the text this morning. If you're using the ESV Bible in your seat back, the text is on page 976. Now, while we will look at every verse in Ephesians by the end of our series, Lord willing, my intention is not to cover only one verse per week as we've done so far. However, as I mentioned last week, chapter one is full of some really big, important things that we need to understand. So we'll be slow going at first, but eventually we'll pick up a few more verses. So this morning we hit Ephesians chapter one and verse four, but I want to read verses one through six to give us a fuller context. So let's read beginning in Ephesians chapter one and verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, there are three main implications of verse 4 for us to look at this morning. The first is this. If you are a Christian, God the Father and God the Son have covenanted together to bring about your salvation. Paul tells us in verse 4 that something happened before the foundations of the world. And we'll talk about what that is specifically that happened. But first, it's important for us to have an understanding of that which uh, theologically we call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, the Bible doesn't use the specific language of covenant of redemption just in the same way it doesn't use the specific language or the word trinity. Nevertheless, all of the distinguishing marks of a covenant are present throughout the scriptures. Now, this is in itself a big study. It could take months of our time, but we're only going to touch on it briefly this morning. What Paul is telling us is that the work of God in salvation was something that was determined in the heavenly places before the foundation of the world. Now, the covenant of redemption is the way in which God did that. It is an intra-Trinitarian covenant. In other words, it involves the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, we are focused primarily on the Father and the Son. The work of the Spirit is another issue altogether. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says things like, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 8, 42. Or John 5, 36. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Or John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, there are many Old and New Testament texts I can point to to show us this covenant of redemption, but these give us a picture for our purposes this morning. Jesus himself is identifying the work that he came to do was by him being sent by the Father. He had a commandment to obey. And following that, we know he had a righteousness to fulfill, a baptism to be suffered, and a work to finish, to complete. So very simply, the covenant of redemption is a covenant that was agreed upon amongst the members of the Trinity before the creation of the universe. And the covenant agreement was such that God would redeem a segment of fallen humanity through the work of the Son and for the glory of the Son. Jesus agreed in this covenantal arrangement to fulfill the exact requirements of the covenant that Adam himself failed to do, and in return 
to express his perfect and incomprehensible love for the Son, the Father chose to give redeemed humanity to the Son as a love gift. That's a lot. I will try to explain that a bit. We learn in Revelation 13 and 17, the Father wrote the names of the redeemed in the book of life before the world began. And those whose names are written in that book are those that the Father is giving to the Son upon the completion of the full work of redemption. It's a wedding picture, you see. There's a wedding happening here. The Father is giving the bride over to the bridegroom. The church is given to the bridegroom. Gifted over to Jesus as his reward upon the fulfillment of his covenantal requirements. So the Lord Jesus Christ intends to save all that are given to him by the Father. And so Paul writes later in Ephesians 5.25, he says, Christ gave himself up for the church. John chapter 10 says that Christ lays down his life for the sheep. So redemption, which the covenant was established to fulfill and accomplish, extends to a host of people chosen before the foundation of the world according to the decree of God. And so it was determined before the world began that even though you and I would live rebellious lives in opposition to God, with hatred for him, living as his enemies, Jesus would fulfill the law that we cannot fulfill. He would die the death that we deserve to die. He would be raised from the dead to receive his just reward. And all of his work would be credited to us as if we had done it ourselves. That's what was agreed upon to happen in the covenant of redemption. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together determined that Jesus would do all that he would do, being sent by the Father and all of these things being applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Now hopefully what we've just said lands on you as praiseworthy truth. Think about this. Before a single speck of dust existed, God the Father determined that you would be saved and God the Son determined that he would die in your place and God the Holy Spirit determined that he would apply all of the benefits of salvation to your daily life. Is there any question that God loves you now and forevermore? And surely it heightens our awareness of just how unworthy of the love of God we are. But while our sin is great, our Savior is far greater. Before the foundations of the world, God wrote down in the book of life, Melissa and Bob and Jenny and Mark and Glenn and Dan and Alan. Your names are in the book of life and they have been since before the world was created. And Jesus looked upon that book and he swore a covenant oath as he looked on those names and he said, I will live for them and I will die for them and I will receive them as my very own treasure that I will delight in forevermore. 
And the father swore a covenant oath. When you live for them, when you die for them, they will become yours forevermore. And I will give them to you all to the praise of your glorious grace forever and ever. Consider that. You and I are here, miserable worms in this world, with our arrogance and our pride and all of our ignorance. We deserve nothing but to be blotted off the face of the earth. But before the foundations of the world, this blessed God, these, these three blessed persons considered us, they considered our condition, considered what would happen to us. And the consequence was that these three persons, God, stopped to consider us and planned a way wherein we would be forgiven and redeemed. And the son said, I will leave glory for a while and I will dwell in the womb of a woman. I will be born as a babe. I will become a servant. I will suffer the insult of the world. I will even allow them to nail me to a cross. And he volunteered and agreed to do all of that for us. And at this very moment now, that blessed second person of the Trinity is seated at the right hand of God to represent you and I. He came down to the earth and he did all of that and he rose again and ascended into heaven and all of this was planned before the world began for you and for me and it all happened by divine decree because God said that it ought and it must and it will. I hope you're thankful for that. You were known and your salvation was planned before the world began. That's worthy of our time and our consideration. And I pray that replays over and over again in our hearts and our minds and causes us to worship God all the more. If you are a Christian, God the Father and God the Son have covenanted together before the foundations of the world to bring about your salvation. That's good news. Well, the second thing for us to see this morning in verse 4 is that if you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God. Now, obviously, verse 4 is tied to verse 3. So with verse 3, we read, blessed, by, be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So here, the Apostle Paul begins to unfold for us what he began in verse 3. Every spiritual blessing is now being identified. How do the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ become ours? It's easy to look at such a big statement from Paul that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and say, yes, but here I am on the earth. I live in the flesh. I am a sinful person. I do sinful things. How can I have even a single blessing in heaven, let alone every spiritual blessing? So Paul is beginning to show us what's been done by God that we might be united to all of the exceeding riches of his grace. And as we look ahead, we're going to see what see Paul is unfolding all of this with each person of the Trinity. 
Verses 4 through 6 show us the work of the Father. Verses 7 through 12 identify the work of the Son. And verses 13 and 14 show us the work of the Holy Spirit. This is Trinitarian through and through. So as we consider the work of the Father, what can account for the fact that we who were once not Christians can now enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? What is it that happens to where we are now Christians enjoying the riches of God's grace? Now, of course, automatically we want to say we believe on Christ. We repent of our sins. And to that I say, amen. But notice that's not where Paul begins. He will get to that eventually, but something else happens first. We don't enjoy the spiritual blessings first and foremost because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or because we made a decision to follow him or we have given our lives to him or we've accepted him as our personal Lord and Savior. That's not where Paul begins, is it? And notice he doesn't even begin with the Lord Jesus Christ where we begin. It's not first and foremost the work of Jesus that he's concerned with. It's first and foremost the work of God the Father. And it's at this point where we might be forced to set aside our theories and our ideas and our own philosophical assumptions and ask directly, what does the Bible say? And it's this. Those who enjoy the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places in Christ Jesus do so because they've been chosen by God to do so. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's where Paul begins. That is his explanation for everything and how in everything we enjoy the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That is the fount. That is the source. He chose you. Man, by nature, rebels against God. And all of that is as a result of the fall. Having listened to the suggestions of the devil, having fallen away from God, mankind is under the wrath of God. Our hearts and our minds and our wills are dead set against him naturally. The Bible says we are at enmity with God. We are his enemies. We have open hostility toward him. That is our natural condition from the moment we are conceived because of original sin. It's our nature. So how is it that any individual in that state can ever come out from under it? We don't just flip a switch when we hear the gospel and decide to come away from it. Remember, even our minds are set against God. So what hope is there? How can any person come away from being under the wrath of God? What must happen for that to be so? The Apostle Paul answers, God has chosen such a person to be delivered from the wrath of God onto redemption. And if you are a Christian, it is because God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, chose you. Again, the Gospel of John makes this wonderful reality all the more clear. In John chapter 6, for example, Jesus states that believers are a gift to him from the Father. He tells the crowds in 637, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
And later in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, the Father draws sinners in order that he might lovingly present them to his Son. All of those who are drawn come. And all who come, the Son receives and embraces. They will never be turned away because the Son would never refuse those who are a gift from his Father. So you see, salvation, redemption, it does not come to sinners because they are inherently desirable, but because the Son is inherently worthy of the Father's gift. After all, the purpose of redemption ultimately is that the Son might be eternally exalted by the redeemed, by the church, by you and me. It's not for the honor of the sinner, but for the honor of the Son. And in response to the Father's love, the Son eagerly accepts those who are drawn to him, wholly because they are a gift from God the Father whom he loves. It is his perfect gratitude that opens his arms to embrace the lost. You know, one, one reason why I think we can struggle with the Bible's teaching on this is because our instinctive response to what salvation is and to what salvation is all about is to begin by looking inward. We look at ourselves. That's the instinctive way we look at all of life, really. But the New Testament is really quite clear, and we are given glimpses of the divine purposes behind election. The salvation of mankind is about something far greater than our own happiness. The salvation of mankind is about a people being redeemed. That will be given over to the Son by the Father as his reward for his faithfulness to fulfill his covenant obligations. All to the praise of his glorious grace. So at the top level, at the ultimate level, the salvation of mankind, your salvation, my salvation, is not first and foremost about us being saved and going to heaven. It's about us being saved so that the Son of God will be rewarded by the Father. You're the Son's reward. Do you see it? I hope hope you're following the logic of Paul's argument here. And brothers and sisters, this necessitates a reality check for us. Lest we get puffed up with pride and self-worth. When you really understand who you are, and when you really have a firm grasp on the reality of your heart and your own sinfulness and your own rebellion against God, the fact that you are chosen by God for redemption is not grounds for boasting. You know what it should do? It should make us more humble than we've ever been before. It should bring us down very low because what I am and what I have been and what I have done is not worthy of the Lord thinking about me and choosing me to be his child from before the foundations of the world. But he has. And so what am I going to do with that? How am I going to live my life knowing that God has willingly, for his own purposes and plans, chosen to save me? It ought to be, as Paul says over and over in chapter 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
That's what we all need to be asking ourselves. Am I living each day, every day, everything that I do, am I living to the praise of his glorious grace? If not, it may very well be that I actually view myself as actually worthy of God's choosing me for salvation. It may very well be that I don't really understand the condition of my heart and the sinfulness of my words and actions and heart toward God in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we have been given an inheritance simply because God chose to do so. How can we not give our lives for him? I hope if, if you've noticed in your own life, maybe, maybe even right now you're, you're riding the fence a bit in your commitment to the things of God and his word and his people, these things have become weak and waning in your life. I hope you'll consider what you're hearing this morning if you believe yourself to be a Christian. The God who created you and everything that exists has chosen you to be his special possession as a gift to his son. What does that mean to you? What does that translate to in your daily life? What ought that translate to in your daily life? You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because God the Father has chosen you to be a gift for his son that you might praise him for eternity. So how much of your life is consumed with being satisfied with the world instead of finding all of your hope and joy and trust and rest and satisfaction in Jesus Christ? He made you to be his own. What does that look like when you wake up, when you go to work, when you parent your children, when you are a spouse, when you are at your job, when you are doing your hobbies, when you are shopping at the store? What does that mean? Does it mean anything at all? How does that communicate in our lives? I pray that it humbles us and brings us to a place of greater awe and reverence before the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you may be thinking, well, if God has chosen a people, it must not be me. That must just be these other people and I'm wasting my time. Do not think that. If you're here this morning, it's for a reason. The God who is sovereign over salvation is also sovereign over the ways and means by which you find yourself here this very morning. And if you have even an inkling of a desire to know God, his call on you is to turn to Christ in faith, to trust in him. And it is not a disingenuous call. Cry out to God and depend on Christ. Repent of your sins and he will not turn you away. He will not keep you from enjoying the spiritual blessings of heaven. They will be yours and he will be yours and you will be his. Turn to Christ in humility that you and I and all of God's people might worship him together for eternity to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, Paul gives us a reason for all of this. He gives us further reason behind God's purpose in choosing a people for redemption. Our final point this morning, if you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God to be holy and blameless before him. At the end of verse four, we see the apostles' words. His purpose clause that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In a verse you hear me cite often, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul identifies the same truth when he writes, He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the question here isn't trying to wrap our minds around figuring out the purposes of God and why he chose anyone at all or why some and not others. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what the Bible does tell us is that there is an ultimate purpose to election, which we've looked at already, and because that's true, there are obvious benefits for you and I. What happens to us as a result of God saving us through the sacrifice of Christ and fulfillment of his covenant obligations? We become holy and blameless. So two things, holy and blameless. Something is taken from us and something is supplied for us. When we become Christians, we are united to Christ. We've looked at that over the last few weeks. And as a result of our union with Christ, we now have all of our blame removed. In other words, what once shamed and rightly condemned us is no longer held against us. As Christ is without spot or blemish, so we too, as we stand before God, are without spot or blemish. Not because of anything we've done, not because of virtue of who we are, but by virtue of the work of Christ on our behalf. Paul's going to explain this later in Ephesians, but for now he simply identifies the result of Christ's work in the life of the believer. Our guilt and our shame are taken away and we are made righteous before God. If you're a Christian, I hope you think about that. Shame and blame do a lot of things and have some really long-lasting destructive effects. All of us, every single one of us, we have things we're not proud of. We have things that have happened or maybe are happening in our lives right now that we're ashamed of. But you know, it's really rare to find a person who's really open about those things and willing to live with an openness about those things before other people. And so often what happens is instead of being honest about the fact that we're sinners and we really are in need of being found blameless before God and that can only be found in Christ, we hide behind things. Most of the time we hide behind trying to impress others with our lives and our supposed good deeds and our own self-righteousness. So what ends up happening a lot of times is that the person we let other people know is not the real person that we are because we get good at putting up a wall and putting on a show because we're filled with shame and we're filled with knowledge of our blameworthiness. But you know what? We can try to hide the fact that we've done and continue to do dumb things. But everyone knows it. Because we all say and do dumb things. Sometimes we do really outrageous and terribly sinful things. So instead of living a lie, can we be honest about ourselves and with one another? Life will not allow any of us to be free from shame. Our weaknesses, the world's uncertainties, and all of our sin all have the potential to shame us 
before everyone around us. There are no shortage of examples in our world of people being shamed in the public eye. That could be any one of us. But the glory of the gospel is that our heavenly father doesn't have a filing cabinet where he keeps a record of all of our wrongdoings so that on the day of judgment, he can make a determination based on the record as to whether or not you've measured up to his standards. The record that was against us, he took away and he nailed it to the cross. He no longer blames us for what shames us because Christ has taken the blame and Christ has removed the shame. So what are you afraid of? Just be honest about who you are because while your fellow man might judge you harshly and say all kinds of evil things about you, before the Lord, you are in Christ and when you are in Christ, you are not given what you are deserved. You are given what Christ has secured for you. And here's the other piece to this. Not only does our union with Christ, Christ remove the blemishes, it also supplies the righteousness. Notice Paul says we are holy and blameless before the Father. The righteousness that was Christ's through his perfect obedience is imputed to us. It is given to us. It is placed upon us. It is credited to our account. The holiness that God requires, he also supplies, not by our works, but by our union with his son who shares with us his own status of holiness. This is cause for amazement. God sees me as being as holy as he sees his own son. Not only do I have my debt wiped away in salvation, I have the riches of Christ's righteousness applied to my account, and I am now able to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. Now, Sometimes we think it works this way, that God pays our debt in Christ, and then when we become Christians, we sort of start over with a zero balance. God doesn't just wipe the slate clean and say, okay, now start over as a Christian, and only what happens from here on out counts, so you better keep it together. No, that's, you know, that's why Christians sometimes try so hard to prove something as if they're perfect and cleaned up and have it all together. You don't just start with a clean account and have a do-over on life. You have a new life. You're a new creation altogether that is marked by holiness. And you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to sin. And yet God opens up the vaults of heaven to give you all the benefits of the storehouse of his grace made full by Christ's obedience. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Having removed our sin, God also supplies whatever is needed out of his entire creation, present or future, to bless us in the best way possible with the riches of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, God chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
He supplies what he demands, and all of it is to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is so rich, has given us so much to feast upon that we might consider the ways in which you bring glory to yourself, the ways in which you exalt the Son, Jesus Christ, the ways in which the Holy Spirit works to apply all of these truths to our lives. We give you thanks, Lord, this morning that as your people we can come before you knowing that we are not an afterthought in your plan, that we're not something that just came about along the way, that you didn't leave us to our own wisdom that is fallible, our own flesh which is weak, our own thoughts which are tainted, our own hearts which are wicked. But instead, before the world began, you chose us and you determined that we would be your children. And so we pray, God, that as we seek to live before the world as your children, that we would live as a people who know that we are your children and made holy and blameless before you to the praise of your glorious grace. And so, God, would you do a work in our hearts to motivate our obedience to your word and all that you call us to by what you have accomplished for us, not because we're seeking to earn something, but out of a thankfulness and a love for you. And may we reflect on these truths all the more so that our love for you would be heightened our hearts would be all the more overwhelmed by your love for us and your willingness to give so much for us. Father, we realize how much we don't deserve, and yet you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Teach us to enjoy those blessings, to delight in them, and to give you all the glory for them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word and its humbling, sanctifying power for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.